This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. This week, I'm joined by Steve Hilton, one of the architects of the Cameroon Project, who left Whitehall for California. One of the inner circle who calls the PM Dave, he helped craft the hugger-hoodie, hugger-husky modernisation of the Tory party, which helped David Cameron return them to power after 13 years in opposition. But two years in Downing Street proved too much for Hilton, who fled to California where his free thinking was more appreciated. As the referendum approaches, he's returned to Britain to plug his book, More Human, and has caused some upset by backing Brexit and claiming in an interview with The Times that David Cameron would back Brexit too if he was still a backbencher. We'll talk about who is best to carry the Cameroon flame as the next Tory leader, how he lives without a mobile phone, and why he padded around Downing Street without any shoes on. But I began by asking him if being back in Westminster made him regret leaving the corridors of power. Do you miss Westminster? I miss Westminster not at all. (laughs) What is it about being back in Westminster that makes you realise you don't miss it? Apart from the fact that you live in California. Well, exactly. It's nothing negative about Westminster, to be honest. It's it's, uh, London or or uh, Britain generally. I love coming back and seeing my friends and being here. But I really love being in California, uh, working in Silicon Valley, running a tech uh, startup, being a CEO of a small growing business is, is a fantastic new challenge and I'm really loving that. I'm also really enjoying, because of the nature of my business, Crowdpack, which is a, um, a crowdfunding platform and voter information site for, the, for, for politics, originally in America, now we're growing internationally. It's got me very involved in US politics and in this year of all years, that's been an amazing uh, and exciting experience. But do you not, as somebody who has a lot of ideas, do you not miss being able to put them into action there's definitely something very very sort of powerful inside of me that says yes you don't just want to write a book you want to make this the ideas in this book happen so I'm certain that at some point in my life I will want to get back into the fray of actually making things happen in government at some level somewhere but this time probably not behind the scenes but actually leading the kind of changes that I want to see but that's that's a very uh, distant prospect at the moment I'm focused on my business um, so yes I do want to get I do, that's exactly what I love doing is actually making the changes happen I, f- I feel like a very kind of executive kind of person in relation to politics that's what I enjoy um, and I would like to do that again but right now um, it's great building a small business so you could see yourself running for elected office at some point yes 
in this country? Uh, as I said, somewhere. I don't, I don't <laughs> really know. I don't have a plan. I'm a long way from having a plan, um, and I'm not really thinking about it, but I'm just saying that I'm just I'm trying to honestly answer yeah. your question. Do you miss... Um, it's not that I miss it now. If you told me I would never again be involved in making change happen in government, I would say... No, that doesn't sound right to me. I would like to do that. But uh, as to where, when, how, not sure. So let's rewind things right back to the beginning. When you met David Cameron, uh, you were working for the Tories in the early 90s. That's right. And what was your? What did you make of him when you first met him? I, I can't remember in, in, in great detail other than we got on very well from the word go. We were, been good friends for, what is it, 25 years or so. And did you think this guy's going to be Prime Minister? Funnily enough, I, it wasn't just me. There was a, there was very strong there was a very strong sense of that, and a lot of people said that around that time, and I think it was because he had then and has now. There's something about his character that that really inspires confidence. Um, he's a genuine leader in that sense, and I think that's what um, people saw then. It was very interesting. People did say that at the time. Did you sense that you shared a sort of political ideology or? Did you sense, and this is, sometimes people use this as a compliment and sometimes an insult towards him, that he doesn't actually believe in a huge amount? That's just not true. Um, he really does believe in some very fundamental things. Um, he's not particularly ideological, but he does have a worldview that's very clear and very strong. And uh, his worldview is in, in a way a very, in some ways, a very traditional conservative one, a scepticism about... Um, utopian schemes to remake the world. That's a phrase that he, he uses a lot um, and has used a lot over the years. A belief in the sort of foundational institutions of, 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 um, of society, the, especially the family, but communities and neighborhoods and, and businesses and, and, those, the, and, the, and the way that good things can ha happen when um, people, people work things out for themselves. Um, that, that notion of trusting people was very central to his worldview. That was always very clear. And I think over the years, we probably, as we talked about these things, as we were friends and, 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 and operated in the different areas we were in, me in business and him for a while in business, and then, then we, 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 when he became uh, an MP, thinking more directly about politics and policy and so on, uh, I think our views probably got more deep, deeply applied to actual policy questions as we, as we discussed them over the years together. So it, it kind of got, you know, it, it, it got um, fleshed out in detail, I guess. What, is, what do these kind of basic sort of principles mean in terms of dealing with the problems that um, a country is facing at any one particular time? And who, who else would you put in the group that was helping to form what would now be seen as sort of Cameroonism? Who else was there? Well, over? I wasn't particularly, I mean, I don't think that it was um, as... Uh, organized as, as that. Um, I mean, there's been a group of us who've been friends for a long time, but we were first and foremost friends. We, yeah. we would we would um, spend time with each other and hang out with each other and go on holiday with each other as friends, uh, more than as a group of people planning some kind of political uh, action or movement. It wasn't really like that at all. So who was in that group? You were at uh, university with Ed Llewellyn. He was in that group, was he? Yeah, I mean, he was he was a good good few years ahead of me, but that's right. He was we were. I mean, I think the place where we really all met for the first time probably was was at the Conservative Research Department, yeah. at, 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 as, as was then Conservative Central Office in the early nineties. Yeah, and then you went off and worked with Sarchi and Sarchi. 
Yes, that's and, right. And created what you now see as a big problem with politics. Well, with. it was before that, actually, I, that, that, <laughs> because um, what in fact, it was David Cameron that gave me that opportunity. He was uh, with Andrew Lansley, who was then running the research department, putting together the team for the 1992 general election. And um, I think it was David that suggested that I should be the person, the campaign coordinator, the person working with the... Um, the ad agency, which was Saatchi and Saatchi. So I was that person. I was the person that um, was the go-between, if you like, and helped uh, coordinate and organize the campaign and provide the political content for the advertising. And so famously, that was the Labour tax bombshell. Yeah, that was the poster. most famous of those. There are a few others, but that was, the, that was the one that really, I think, made the most impact in that election campaign. And you've admitted that the, is it £1,500 was on the poster? Well, it was not admitted. I'm just telling, describing what yeah. actually happened, which was that the very, very first version of that that famous poster had the same, very similar. Actually, it looked the same, and it had the same headline: "Labour's tax bombshell." And in and the in the middle of the poster, the main image was this old-fashioned World War II image of a bomb, and in on that was written, the in the very first version, the word "tax." And there was some line of copy underneath that said Labour's promises would cost you, uh, you'd pay more tax or something like that. Um, and I remember asking at that meeting when it was presented, the first meeting, wouldn't it be more powerful if we put a figure on it? Um, and indeed, it was more powerful when, <laughs> when we put a figure on it. But then you have to ha have a figure. And so we went through the process of estimating the cost of Labour spending promises. And then that yielded a big number, I think, £30 billion pounds or something like that. And then you divide that by the number of households and you get a figure, which in this case was £1,000. So the words on the poster went from just saying tax to you'd pay an extra £1,000 tax a year under Labour, which, of course, in a literal sense is clearly not true. It's not true that everyone reading that poster would pay £1,000 extra tax a year, but it set the precedent, I guess, for uh, a series of claims like that in politics. Every single election, and we've even seen it in the referendum campaign. A lot take more a in the referendum campaign. Take a huge exactly. number, divide it by the number of people, and you've got yourself 4,000 That's right, and the technique is very straightforward, and, and uh, it's it, you could say it's... Um, in some sense is reasonable because what you're trying to do is you're, you're trying to make a point. The point in one sense is a bit vague. You're saying Labour will increase your, in this case, Labour will increase your taxes. That's that's a vague statement. This is about trying to make it precise in order for it to have more impact. And that's what's happening in the referendum campaign. Um, so rather than saying you'll be worse off, the Remain side are saying you'll be £4,300 worse off or whatever whatever the figure is. And every day there seems to be a new figure and the new generated. And they're all the same. Slightly all, questionable. As, you know, I've, well, more than questionable. <laughs> I've, I've, used, I've described them as phony figures, and yeah. that's what they are because they are not literally true. But it is your fault. It's not my fault, but I certainly... <laughs> um, I, think, I think I have to acknowledge some responsibility for this, having been involved in it over the years. And it's fair to say that then you drifted away a bit from the Tory party when William Hague became leader. What was I doing then? I was running my business, good business, I think. Yeah. yeah. So I was focused on that. And it's, there's always this, did you vote Green in 2001? Yes. And that was because the Tory party was lurching up to the right and it just didn't fit with what you're... I, th I can't remember. I think it was partly that. I think it was partly the, the candidate. I think that... Um, I was very interested in... Uh, it was a very safe Labour seat, by the way, so there, there was no point... There was not going to be any other outcome yeah. than um, the Labour candidate winning. And so um, I didn't... I, to be completely honest with you, I don't think I thought about it that hard. But then when you came back into the sort of the David Cameron project, we fast-forward a bit, actually being green was quite a big part of that, the early 
the early stuff, the hugger husky. Yeah, no, I've always cycling been. I've always been. Um, I would describe myself as, as an, an environmentalist in the sense that I've always been interested in and committed to those issues, but not necessarily. You know, my definition of that, as I explain in my book, uh, the final chapter of my book, More Human, is actually uh, called Nature, and for me, environmentalism is about protecting nature. It's about immediate things like uh, protecting habitats and biodiversity and ecosystems and preventing the, the species loss. And I do think that the emphasis that the green movement has put, the obsession, I would call it, with climate change and carbon dioxide is actually making something that, that could be very a kind of universally shared agenda, where in the end, I think we're all keen to yeah. make sure that that beaches and rivers and mountains and forests and lakes are not polluted and I think that's something everyone can relate to children love animals we can etc that that type of environmentalism I think is very appealing and engaging and has and has a sort of cross-party appeal whereas the it seems to me almost ideological obsession with carbon dioxide and climate change is a turn-off for a lot of people. Well, it's a, it's a bit like the, and that's the tax not, bombshell. No, that's not how I feel about... That's not, so, when, so I would very much say being green, as it were, was, was part of that um, modern conservative agenda. But as far as I was concerned, that didn't mean the same thing as being obsessed about climate change. Did you find a lot of resistance in that? Because there was a big period of change in the sort of... From 2005 onwards, of David Cameron becomes leader and trying to change the Tory party. It had lost... Yeah, uh, well, not try succeeding. Succeeded, yeah, 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 but it, but it was a, it was a struggle to, to I mean, it, you know, whether it was, well, it was a it was a process, and it and it was a, a long term process, and he was elected leader at the beginning of a parliament, and, yeah. and therefore there was a plan to do that over a number of years, and to develop a a policy agenda that would reflect the application of those conservative principles that I spoke about earlier on, that this notion of trusting people and 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 a belief in, in the decentralization of power and and also an emphasis on on some of the things that may have been lost from the Tory um, argument over the years. For example, how our values could help tackle poverty and help those who are most disadvantaged in society. Um, so all of that came together in our policy review and uh, that was that was a long-term process but you're right at the beginning of it i think there was a lot of suspicion inside the party and 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 outside that it was um it was too i think that there was there was a, a simplistic interpretation of it as just copying new labor yeah and a sense that well this is the this is what blair did they ditched all the things they believed in <laughs> and they had slick marketing and all the rest of it and so this is just what they're doing and I felt that was completely the opposite in the sense that it seemed to me that Labour had lost the intellectual argument. They had to change what they believed fundamentally, not just um, how they applied their uh, principles to policy, but actually the principles themselves didn't make sense anymore in the modern world. They'd been proved to have failed. And therefore, that was a wholesale reinvention. Whereas for us, the, um, the problem was not with the ideas, it was with the way that those ideas seemingly didn't address the daily concerns that, that real people had here in the UK. And how do you feel looking back at that period? With it, One of the things when I was uh, going back through cuttings before we met today, I, I looked back on was the, the David Cameron cycling. Yeah. Anyway, that was seen as a big thing. It was a, a party leader was on a bicycle. And then there was the, the story about how he was cycling and he's 
shoes in his box as yeah. being brought in a car yeah. behind. How do you, how do you reflecting back on all that? Because at the time it seemed quite radical, and now it's become a bit of a cliche of you know whether it's huggling a husky or cycling, and it's all a bit of a joke. But it was it seemed quite radical at the time. Well, we'll describe. I mean, I, I wouldn't use the word radical to describe things like that. I, I, radical, I think, I, when I hear that word, I think about you know, substantive things, like yeah. policy or whatever. So I would say that the the role that all of that played was actually just to tell people who David Cameron was. Yeah. Because when you're electing a party in our system, you are also choosing a prime minister. And that is a question of character. And people want to know who they're choosing as their prime minister. They need to get to know you. And he felt very strongly about that, actually, that, that it was important and the public had a right to know what kind of person you are. Because, again, in a, I think it's a very conservative point of view, which is that Although going into an election, you make all sorts of promises and you have a manifesto and you do your best to implement them in the real world, there's compromise and things are difficult and so on. But in any case, most of the things that a, that a prime minister ends up doing is responding to unpredictable future events that you don't know yeah. about at the time of the election. And so in a way, understanding who you are as a leader, how you would respond to things is a really important part of um, conveying to people why they should vote for you. And so he was very keen and thought it was perfectly reasonable and legitimate for people to understand who he was, what he cared about as a person. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. So they got his character. And riding his bike was just what he did. He'd been doing it for years. It wasn't something that was created uh, for him to do uh, once he became leader of the opposition. It was simply continuing what he'd always done. And now people would uh, film him doing it because he was leader of the opposition. And and so really the, the, the question was, well, why, why didn't we stop doing it earlier and the reason we didn't stop doing it, even though to a certain extent it was getting harder and harder and less practical because he had more and more papers and a busier schedule and it just became, from a practical point of view, more difficult to keep it going. We did try and keep it going and he wanted to keep it going because that's what he liked doing and, and people filmed it. But in the end, th- there's a sort of practical reality that intrudes. <laughs> on the, actually, that brings me on nicely to the, the practical reality of getting into government mm-hmm. and your experience in... Number 10, you were there for two and a half years, two and a half years. And fair to say you didn't particularly enjoy the process of dealing with Whitehall and Sir Humphrey. Is that fair? Not really. I found most of the people that I worked with great people. And so, of course, it's true. And I'm sure we'll get into this in a second that I have 
strong views on the bureaucratization of and centralization of modern government, not just here, but in America where I now live and, and in, in the EU, of course. But um, that's not a reflection on the individuals. The argument I, I make in my book, actually, in, in More Human, is that the, the problem is not that of the wrong people or people with the wrong ideas or the wrong policies, right? So much as we've, we've built systems and structures for running the modern world, whether that's in the economy or in government or, or public services, that are just too big and bureaucratic and distant from the human scale. And it means that any individual working within those systems and structures finds it really hard to, to, to operate in a way that's human. And so none of what I say is actually directed at the individuals. It's, it's the, the system. system. Yeah. Exactly. And, where, and it's, it's, I wouldn't say it would be correct that so I didn't enjoy it. I enjoyed very much the great and amazing opportunity to make changes happen. And if I look at some of the things that, that we got done, I'm incredibly proud of that. Um, What's, what, what, what in particular do you think you, well, some, you can say, so specific things, yeah. Like, well, I mean, non, nothing, because it's, everything, <laughs> we is, a did team, that. You, everything is a team effort. Yeah. But um, there are particular things that I really uh, focused on. Um, one of them was the Troubled Families Programme, which, which um, Louise Casey led, who's a brilliant civil servant and um, that was all about trying to do something to help get the lives back on track of of the families in our country who had just for actually for decades had really been stuck in this really desperate state of dysfunction where they were miles away from what anyone would recognize as being a normal life causing the most problems for their communities and for, for the state generally, but also suffering the problems. So from both points of view, you wanted to do something about it. So that was a very, very big investment of time and effort and, and, and eventually resources to get that set up. That's a great yeah. thing. Uh, National Citizen Service, which is going from strength to strength. That's an idea that David Cameron and I, actually the two of us, worked on. And, and, and it was a really great example of how we both had the same instinct on something and then and then over the years uh, sort of formulated it into a policy where we both had this sense that national service had played a really great role in bringing the country together and creating this sense of common citizenship and an understanding of people from different backgrounds and, and parts of the country and so on. And so we, ha- we had this idea that maybe we could develop a, for young people a kind of non-military national service of some kind. And then we worked on that during the years of opposition, and now it's doing incredibly well. Our vision of National Citizen Service was it was a youth development, community engagement, um, uh, outward bound combination of all those things uh, for 16-year-olds, a residential program and community-based program take place over the summer. We initially wanted it to be compulsory because we thought that we, we wanted everyone to go through it, a bit like National Service. Yeah. That was the whole idea. Yeah, yeah. And after working with youth groups and, and testing various different options out in opposition, came to the view that actually that that would actually make it really unattractive <laughs> less fun if you have to do it yeah, exactly yeah. so where we ended up was well let's create something that is so great that everyone wants to do it in other words we achieve universal universality by making it by making it good rather than something you and have to do honestly we are on track to do that it's yeah. growing really well it's now ncs it's a it's a separate but i think it's been spun out of the cabinet office and that's another thing where you can point to that and say that's great that's a long-term legacy got political um, uh, cross-party backing for it now during the last election campaign Ed Miliband for example said yeah. that if Labour won they would continue with it so there are, and there are many other things like that um, that you could point to so it's a great great privilege and um, many things many great things got done but there was 
massive frustration, not just on my part, on everyone's part, because of the way that, that bureaucracy, which is an easy term to fling around, but it really does mean something in the context of how government operates, because so much of, um, so much of it is literally bureaucratic in the sense of, um, you know, bits of paper being managed and, and, and the systems that derive from that. There's a frustration with that in terms of slowing down the pace of what you want to do, but also uh, forcing you to do things you don't want to do. Yeah. And I, I need to ask why we're talking about your time in number 10. Nobody can write about your time in number 10 without referring to the fact you walked around without any shoes on. Why I don't it? know quite why that's such an amazing... Um, <laughs> well, what? well, because well, because cause nobody else walks around number 10 without issues. The something. thing I would say about that is that it's a, a bit weird to me that they don't, because number 10, as people who've been there will know, is a is a residential building, and it's full of soft furnishings and, and plush carpets. And it's all you were just making the most of the carpets. I was not making the most of it. Just, to me, it's normal <laughs> to take your shoes off when you're at home, and um, it, it, it feels a bit like a home. So I didn't think anything of it. It was, it was just, a, to me, a normal thing to do. The the thing that makes me laugh about it most is the is the this strange word that has crept into most of the reports. That you're quite right. Most of the pieces that that have been written about my time they you refer to this. But the way they do it is very curious. It's almost every single time they talk about me padding around, padding around. Padding. Yeah. I think I'm padding. Not, I might have written padding. It's just before. so weird. I mean, I just don't <laughs> know where that word has sort of come from. No well, I suppose that's what happens. That's just the sound of socks on a plush carpet, isn't it? Well, he's, I don't know. I, I just think it's very. Uh, with, with some friends, we have, we have sort of pad watch, you know. Okay, here we go. There's another article. Will it have the word padding? Padding. And, and sure enough, there it is. Uh, the other thing I must ask you about is this issue about having a phone or not having yes. a phone. So uh, we'll come on to Brexit um, uh, in a moment. But you, you talked this week about how the EU was light, as old-fashioned as having a landline. Yes. But you only have a landline, don't you? In our house in California, yes. But you don't. I, mean, have, I don't have a phone. You don't no. have a phone, and you don't no. do email. No, I do email. You that's do do email. I, you do do I email. Operate, now. Yeah. If you ever had a mobile. Yeah, I had a mobile uh, all the time. I, for most of the time that people had mobiles, up until um, shortly after I left. So actually, what happened? I, I never liked smartphones. I've never yeah. had a smartphone for two reasons. One is that I just don't like the the touchscreen format. I never got used to it. Never liked it. And while I was in the government, I had a real desire not to have the internet component of a smartphone, so that. Um, I, I could get a break from the endless emails, Easy. the avalanche of yeah. emails particularly. And so all the time I was in government, I had a really old-fashioned Nokia phone uh, with buttons that could do text messages but not receive email or send email. And so all my time in government, that's what I used. And then and you I left texting a lot, up. so it's not like I was anti-phones yeah, yeah. or anti-technology. Moved to America... In Silicon Valley, it wasn't easy to get one of those phones. Um, <laughs> and so for a while, I had someone here. You had to find a museum Yeah, or exactly. And so for a while, I had someone here uh, send me over. And also, they, they went, they stopped making them. Not right, yet stopped yeah, making yeah. them. You couldn't even get the ones that I had. Yeah. So for a while, I went through the ludicrous process of getting them off eBay that had been kind of re, re, uh, you know, redone so that they would work. And then I had, at one point, a pay-as-you-go plan that was based in the UK. So I'd basically make one phone call and use up my entire month's whatever it was. Yeah. It was just a nightmare. And then um, I, I remember exactly the moment that, that, that I just sort of gave up, which was um, I was at the, in fact, at the Republican convention in Tampa. So I, I can time it exactly. Yeah. It's 2012, whenever that was, I think the beginning of September, something like that. And in a break from the, in, in, before the proceedings began, one day we went to the beach and, and my phone was in my pocket and this very fine sand that's on the beaches there got in then and blocked the outlet for power, the power outlet. And so I couldn't charge it. And I just thought, you know what? 
I just can't be bothered with this anymore. Just, oh, I'll get round to it later. And then a week later, I found myself cycling to Stanford, where at the time I was, I was teaching, and suddenly realized it's been a week and I haven't <laughs> had a phone and it's fine. Everything's fine. The world hasn't stopped. The world turning. hasn't stopped. Yeah. And I thought, that's very interesting. I sort of, I'm sure I'll get one eventually, but I'll see, see how it feels and keep going. And then it turned into a month and then a few more months. And then actually after about three or four months, I, it actually became a choice. And that's what it now is. It is now a conscious choice. I find that it really does um, improve your life. It gives you time to think, which I think is one of the big things that being constantly connected uh, takes away from you. I just want to touch on David Cameron's legacy, if you like, and because there's a lot of focus on this, depending on what happens with the Brexit vote. But he said he's not going to stand again in 2020. Do you see his legacy as it now looks, what you hoped it would be when you set out on the programme? Or, or is, he a, is, he a diff, is it a different beast now to when you started? I think it's just a question of degree and scale. And, and, and I think, and I've said this before, that I... Um, I'm doomed to be disappointed always you know <laughs> yeah. that's my in a way it's my job to be disappointed to say that's not enough that's not good enough we need to go further faster that that's my job that's my role so I think that there's so much great work that's been done and much more that I would have liked to do but then that's that will be true even if we'd have done twice as much or three times as much or probably 10 times as much I still would have wanted more do you worry a bit about being the guy who used to be in number 10 who just sort of lobs every so often I've comes really back I've really not done that actually I really haven't done that um, this is the first time yeah I've been really I, I, that's a, a, a very fair point and I've, I've worked studiously to avoid that so if you look back over the last yeah. four years that hasn't that's happened well, I, the other occasion that happened was in relation to China, yeah. where I felt very strongly that the, the sucking up to China was just something I couldn't support. So what you, what, other than that, I've been focused on what I'm doing in California, building a business. What's caused the upset this time around is you, you backing Brexit, but in particular in an interview with The Times saying that you think that David Cameron would back Brexit if it, were he not Prime Minister. Um, have you been surprised by the reaction to that? I don't know. You tell me what the reaction well, is. Well, one of the things... Well, if you've seen it... Well, presumably, because you haven't got a phone, you haven't seen Andrew Cooper's tweet. Do you know no. about Andrew Cooper? So Andrew Cooper tweeted, without mentioning you by name, but yes. you, we'll, we'll judge whether or not it's related. It says, new meaning of close friend. Yes. Someone who owes but betrays absolute loyalty and sells out, often trashily, to flog <laughs> themselves and other crap. <laughs> I wonder, that, what, what time of day was that? I think really? it might have been quite late. Yeah, that feels like a late night one to me. <laughs> Do you feel like you're, you've, you've, you've betrayed loyalty? Is David Cameron still a friend of yours? No, I, so I haven't betrayed Gilles, yes, a yeah. friend of mine. I, haven't, but, yeah. um, um, I don't think so. I, I've, um, I've, I think it's perfectly reasonable for friends to disagree about something. Yeah. It happens with all of us in all our lives all the time. You, have you heard from the Prime Minister? I ju- no, I haven't. We haven't been in touch. Um, he, can't, he can't get in touch with you. Presumably. He can't get in touch. There might be a fax but, waiting for you. At home. That's right. No, I think. Look, he knows how I feel about it. I think. I, um, I think that you know, he, he, this is. I, this has been a very consistent position mine for, of mine for twenty or so years, for as long as I can remember. Um, and I think that it's also consistent with the arguments that we were making, as we we touched on earlier, about modern conservatism, this belief in trusting people and devolving responsibility and being sceptical about grand schemes to remake the world. All of those things, I think, point leaving the EU. Do you have somebody who you think would 
is the best person to carry the flag, the standard bearer after David Cameron? Who's, who's, who would you like to see as the next well, leader? The first point I'd make is I'd like to hi- him to c- continue uh, as Prime Minister as long as he wants to do that. Yeah. Um, but, but knowing that he is going, is, is a, a candidate, is George Osborne, Boris Johnson? Oh, oh, there's no doubt in my mind that of the of the people that are, uh, are being speculated about. Let's let's put it like that. George is quite clearly the 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 person that I would have most confidence in. I can't let you go without getting you to do the uh, red box sweepstake because everybody who comes on the podcast we right. ask to predict the outcome of the referendum. So, what percentage of the vote do you think Remain is going to get? Oh, I'm not doing that. I think that. Um, oh, go on. It's, everybody no, 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 does it's, it. It's really hard. I I I, I think that. It's so changeable. I mean, you've got um, such a high proportion of people saying they don't know or could change their mind. I mean, I think that in in a way, I'm, I am dodging your question. Sorry, unbelievable. Um, but um, you're already you're already becoming a politician. No, I'm dodging the question because I think I genuinely think it's a month away and and so much could change. But the, when you ask about percentages, I think the, the 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 thing that comes to my mind is that this is a very complicated decision it's yeah. not straightforward it's not clear cut so if you look at for example crowdpack on my, my my startup we have a test that you can do to see where where you fall are you in yeah. or out and it's a pretty long and serious set of questions about you know the, the and have you done the test i have and do you come out and we an give out? you a percentage oh, okay. score that's yeah. why i thought of yeah, it when yeah. you mentioned yeah, percentages yeah. and i have done it and my score was my, my in the end you, it's in or out yeah. right but then there's a, there's a percentage and mine was 75% out it wasn't okay. 100% yeah, yeah. out and other people have got results you know I've met anecdotally and users emailing in so you get they, they show their results like 89% yeah. so it's very fine grained yeah. I got 75% out I think that's a reasonable a reasonable answer because it isn't to me one of those questions where um, one side is, is completely right and the other side is completely wrong. Both sides have got good arguments. And that's why I think it's a shame that the campaign has become this really simplistic um, trading of scare stories because it's, it's, it's actually very complicated and there's, there are good points on both sides. Have you been disappointed by the Leave campaign? Because there's been a lot of criticism about it. I've been much more disappointed with the Remain campaign okay. because I think that the way that they are flinging around these kind of phony figures and, and scare stories on a daily basis is just not taking this as seriously as it deserves. Steve Hilton, thanks very much. That's all we've got time for this week. As ever, you can sign up to my morning red box email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box forward slash sign up. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or via your Android device and get in touch via Twitter at Times Red Box or find us on Facebook. And unlike Steve Hilton, if you want to send us your Red Box sweepstake predictions, you can email them to redbox at thetimes.co.uk. But for me and Steve, for now, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.